Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. I want to do something a little different today, and instead of uh, speaking, homilizing, preaching on one of the scriptures, I want to uh, take an opportunity, since this is uh, a morning prayer and uh, we're, we don't have Mass today, so since it already feels a little different, I want to do something different and talk about music in the Orthodox Church, in our tradition specifically. Uh, but I can't help but just drop a theological thought on the passage from the Gospel that we just heard. When we hear Jesus tell Peter, get behind me, Satan, um, it always seems like, just from Peter simply saying, Lord, we don't want you to die, you can't go to Jerusalem and do this, getting called Satan uh, seems a little harsh. <laughs> like, where did that come from? That's really strong. That's uh, a strong reaction. But what Jesus is actually telling Peter um, is that he is doing the same thing that the serpent did to Adam and Eve in the garden when he told them, you're not going to die. Surely you're not going to you're not going to die if you uh, go and take something that doesn't belong to you if you step out of the will of your maker and Peter uh, is giving Jesus counsel to step out of the will of his father um, and he's saying to him essentially you're not going to die Jesus calls him that serpent's name to show that there is nothing to be preferred to the uh, following the will of God and that the pattern that he's about to set for us is the pattern that Adam, specifically Adam and Eve, failed to set for us in the garden, which is to die to self. Actually, um, the devil was right in the case of Adam and Eve. They took the fruit and they didn't die. It's almost like they refused to die to self by obeying the will of God and following their own will instead, and so they took the fruit. And so they didn't die like they were supposed to anyway. They didn't die to self. And so the second Adam, the true Adam, came and established the pattern of dying to self and wouldn't let anyone, even his uh, closest disciple, um, use Satan's trick to stop him. So just a little reflection there. I wanted to talk about music today. Uh, you might notice that we have hymnals in the pews and that uh, we aren't using the binder of hymns that we have used for years and years um, because I thought it might be time to uh, finally use this wonderful resource that we've actually had for uh, quite a while. Uh, when we were becoming uh, coming into the Orthodox Church from the Anglican tradition, however, we had some hymns and some tunes that we were accustomed to using and singing that weren't found in uh, this book. A lot of our hymns are. A lot of them are there. Some of them are there, but with a different tune that we didn't have. And so for a long time, uh, we continued using our own resource. Um, but this resource uh, was put together by uh, the good people at um, St. Gregory the Great Orthodox Church up in Maryland. And it is a fantastic hymnal. Now, there may still be times when it's really uh, appropriate for us to use some of the old tunes and, and hymns and whatever that we are accustomed to, and in that case, we'll just print a supplement and sing from there. But uh, I want us to go ahead and start uh, singing from this hymnal because of what it will introduce us to, um, I think, outweighs what we may uh, lose occasionally in it. 
the reason uh, someone went to all the trouble, uh, a priest and his wife primarily uh, went to all the trouble to compile this resource is because there is such a rich musical tradition uh, in the Western Rite. And uh, there are some wonderful hymnals like the 1950-something, 60 uh, Episcopal Hymnal of the United States uh, is a terrific resource that has a lot of the same content in it. Uh, but they, they uh, went a step farther and uh, pulled together some things that weren't in that Episcopal Hymnal. Some of the office hymns, for example, like we are going to sing uh, right after this. Um, that uh, some Anglicans in the 19th century put together from the old Latin uh, tradition. Anyway, there is so much that is not only available, but is actually prescribed and normative in the history of um, morning and evening prayer in the Mass. And where did all that come from? Um, one of the things that you notice immediately coming from some other uh, not as liturgical uh, Christian denomination, if you're to come and visit, is you discover that we sing virtually everything. Why is everything sung? Uh, there's very little that's just spoken in the course of our services um, here in the church. And one of the reasons for that is because uh, singing just automatically elevates words. Um, we don't just sing hymns. We also sing psalms, but we also sing just prayers. When we sing our colics, they're chanted. Why? Because musical tonation makes uh, the words more memorable. It uh, gives, aside from just prose, we even chant epistles, like letters from Peter, right? Um, it, it helps to sink into our minds and our memories better. Uh, it also gives it more of a, a sense of gravitas, uh, it literally brings it up from normal speaking tone to a chanted tone, so it's elevated not only uh, in our ears, but in our hearts and our minds as well. Um, and also, there's just a practical purpose. It's easier to hear things when they're chanted, and you've got a, a big group of people. This is not unique to uh, the Christian West. It's also in the Christian East, but it's not even unique to Christianity in general. Uh, Across the globe, people have sung things in religious contexts because there's this intuition that when we're doing something that connects us to the transcendent, singing what we're saying makes more sense. And so um, it's great that there is a tradition also of just preaching, you know, the homiletics, just the didactic teaching element is always been there in uh, the Jewish tradition and in the Christian as well. That's great. But it can be overemphasized. It can uh, be uh, can make the service fall a little bit flat when 85 to 90 percent of it is just a guy talking to you. It's important that we as a group sing uh, not just a handful of songs together, but most of what we're here uh, and, and saying and hearing. It's important that it's sung. So where did our musical tradition come from? How did we get this wonderful repertoire of um, music that we have now. The liturgical music of the church obviously be began with the liturgical music of the Israelites. This is from an article on liturgica.com. With the construction of the first temple in Jerusalem, liturgical music is described for the first time as an integral part of worship. See 2 Samuel 6, 1 Chronicles, also chapter 6. 
In addition, the Psalms of David not only became the core material of liturgical worship, but a psalmody developed as a way to chant or sing these psalms. So it wasn't just poems, and it wasn't just a, um, a one melody particular, but there was a whole way of singing that developed uh, to, to handle all of the prayers and all the psalms. Equally important to understand is that the worship form revealed by God to the children of Israel was not just ceremonial and centered around sacrifice. According to the very same revelation, it was to reflect worship, reflect the worship in heaven. The Torah has many instances, see Isaiah chapter 6 and Daniel chapter 7, which describe worship in heaven. And what was being done in the temple uh, was a reflection of what was being done by the angels in heaven. The synagogue uh, as something distinct from the temple, originated as sort of just a local place for people who weren't near Jerusalem to come and hear the words of Torah and to pray together. Uh, but during the exile uh, of the Israelites, first to um, Assyria and then the, the Judahites, the Jews, to Babylon, synagogue became much more ritualized and it took on many elements of the temple worship, including its psalmody. So uh, the synagogue became a place where uh, a lot of what was happening in the temple began to happen in the synagogues. Uh, it even had uh, it took on the shape of the temple. It had a, um, a holy of holies where instead of the Ark of the Covenant was kept the book of the Torah. And so uh, all of this was becoming more and more um, solidified and codified. And so by the time of Jesus and the apostles and the early church, this very uh, codified ritual of the temple and the synagogue with its music and all of its hymnody um, was, of course, used by the early Christians. Uh, the early development of the Christian liturgy combined the synagogue and temple forms together, though, and refocused all the temple sacrifice on Christ as the new and final sacrifice uh, and following his institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper. And so, as the Christians began their uh, worship together, it became pretty, you know, solidified in its form um, by the end of the first century. So when Christians are spreading out into all of the world in the second and third century, they are taking with them uh, a form of Christian worship that began in Jerusalem and then spread everywhere. And that same form uh, was remarkably similar, but it began to take on different colorings of musical styles depending on where it went. In a lot of places, the uh, Greek music uh, styles started to, uh, the tonalities, like the eight tones, uh, that, that was a, a very Greek um, musical form, and it began to be applied to the church music. Even in Rome, uh, the main language that was spoken by most people was Greek. Throughout the Roman Empire, that was the case. But even in Rome itself, uh, Greek was largely spoken by the majority of people. Latin, however, was uh, the official language of the state there in Rome. And so, you know, people did know it. But the first Christian liturgies that we know of uh, coming from Rome were mostly in Greek. And we have remnants of that, which is why even today the Kyrie that we sing is still in Greek. We don't, uh, we, we, it was never Latinized to, uh, um, you know, uh, Dominus, uh, Whatever Lord have mercy is in Latin, I'm, I'm blanking. But we, we kept it, Kyrie eleison, because that's, that's just, it was one of the first things that was sung in the Mass, and even as the Mass became more Latin in Rome, they kept, they kept that. 
We have a few other hymns that, that hung around in the West too, like the Fos Hilaron. It's uh, an evening hymn. Uh, it, it stayed in the, in the Western church for a long time, but it was in Greek. So there is a, a, a scholar named Gregory Dix who describes how this transition from Greek to Latin started happening in the West and specifically in Rome. The local church of Rome had begun as a Greek-speaking body. The majority of its members were Greek-speaking Levantines living in the foreign quarters of the city, but it began to use Latin in its liturgy probably in the later half of the second century as the faith spread among the Latin-speaking inhabitants of the city. Though the use of Greek went on side by side, by side with Latin down to the fourth, perhaps even fifth century, Elsewhere in the West, for example, in Africa, North, North Africa, where uh, Cyprian of Carthage, where Augustine of Hippo were, uh, Latin was already being used um, from the 2nd century. In the 4th to 5th centuries, when Greek was ceasing to be spoken in the West, but Latin was still sort of a, a lingua franca, in which, for example, all public notices were posted from Northumberland in Britannia to Casablanca, and from Lisbon to the Danube, it was natural that all Christian rites should be in the Latin of the West. And so even though in various places in the West, uh, the Christian message had spread and was being um, uh, prayed and sung in their particular musical forms, like in the British Isles, Brythonic and, and the Celtic music traditions probably influenced there, um, the Gallican, um, the Gauls of what's now France, had their own probably musical traditions. Eventually, uh, there rose a power, uh, the Franks, uh, who started conquering a lot of areas. They eventually became Christianized, and um, Christianity started to spread across the continent of Western Europe now. Um, and by the time of Charlemagne, Charles the Great, uh, the king of the Franks, they had virtually... Uh, a new empire in the West. And they had their own Christian forms of worship, but he wanted to standardize Christian worship across his new empire. And so he looked to Rome as sort of the first and primary and most preeminent source of uh, liturgical worship, of music. And so he sent for musicians from Rome to come and teach his court, and then by extension the empire. And there was already a tradition in Rome that one of the first most important um, people in regards liturgy and music was one of the bishops, St. Gregory the Great, who was largely responsible for uh, codifying, collecting, and making the form of worship there sort of official. And so this legend of, of Gregory sort of making everything official uh, became a little exaggerated uh, among the Franks and, and uh there arose a legend that basically Gregory the Great wrote everything, all of our propers of the church. Not entirely true, but he was very important, which is why the chant of the West has been called Gregorian chant for so long. It's not that St. Gregory invented it or wrote it all, but he was very influential. So the Western uh, world of Christendom uh, was incredibly influenced by Roman uh, liturgics, by the Latin language and by the chant uh, used primarily in Rome. And by the end of the ninth century, it was essentially uh, one big unified tradition in the West. There are obviously some places where uh, things were a little bit different from here to there, but 
by and large, that's how we got what we call our Western Christian tradition. Um, and so, I mean, that carried on for, for centuries, all the way up to the Reformation in the 16th century. Christian tradition in the West was remarkably um, codified and, and solid. Um, and so that's, I mean, most of what we do here, most everything that we do here is just directly from this strong, laudable Christian tradition in the West. So what is it? How do we actually use it? We sing most things, again, because of the uh, intuition that singing in the presence of the divine is the best response that we can give. Uh, a lot of times we have uh, those images that we see of the worship in heaven. It's always songs, right? Angels aren't just uh, preaching to each other, <laughs> and they're not talking to God or, or just uh, offering prayers. They're singing. Praise is the primary response of creatures in the presence of God. And so that's why we sing most things. We have different uh, things that we do sing. We can categorize things a little differently. One of the things that we uh, do that informs a lot of our worship is the psalms, psalmody, that comes straight from the Jewish scriptures, that the Christians maintained as their main song and prayer book from the earliest centuries, and it has continued to be the majority of the content giving us most of what we use in worship up to this day. Um, it is not only, we, we don't just sing it in chunks like in morning prayer, it also is uh, most of the propers that we sing are introit and gradual and uh, alleluia and communion verses. Most of those come from the Psalms, especially in the West. Uh, the, the East tended to start, um, there were, there were, monasteries, monastics, who uh, would write a lot of their own poetry and hymns and stuff like that. And the East tended to use a lot of that monastic poetry in uh, their services. The West was a lot more conservative, actually, and tended to stick with the Psalms of the Scriptures. And so that's, that's the majority of what we use in church, in our worship, is the Psalms. But we also have hymns. Uh, hymns in, in the West... Um, Largely go back to uh, St. Ambrose, which is why the hymnal in our pews now is named after St. Ambrose. He um, took some cues from the East, who were already starting to write hymns. He started to write some poetry uh, for his diocese in um, uh, northern Italy. And, but he made, it, he made it Western. He took the more Western forms of music, the tones that were used in the West. He made it more metric. Uh, Latin was used instead of Greek in all of his hymnology. And he really gave us a lot of some of our earliest uh, hymns. And a lot of the hymns that are still prescribed for us in morning and evening prayer come directly from St. Ambrose. So hugely influential. Um, hymns tend to be a little more didactic. Uh, they can be prayerful. Obviously, there's praise and supplication in a lot of our hymns. But they also teach us things. They're, 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 they're very... Uh, it's a good way to learn uh, theology and doctrine. Rhyming happened uh, in the later Middle Ages. Uh, if you come from a Protestant tradition like a lot of us do, um, we're familiar with hymns that rhyme, right? Well, that happened. That was a Latin innovation. Um, most hymnology throughout the, the world or poetry uh, tends to be, um, it uses its feel, uh, its rhythm, its bounce, 
alliteration, those are the, the forms of literature that tend to predominate uh, in poetry. But in the Latin West, rhyming started to happen. And in English, well, the Germans too, but around the Protestant Reformation, rhyming was one of the, the, the most uh, the sort of favorite ways to uh, put poetry together for, for hymns. And so that, that's a uniquely Western thing. John Mason Neal is one of the best translators that we have. He is responsible for translating a lot of the old Latin stuff into English. Uh, his name is probably going to be uh, at the bottom of a lot of the hymns we're going to find in that hymnal. Um, instruments are, they have, they're allowed in the West. The organ is the most traditional because it's one of the oldest. And it's one of the most useful in just filling up the, you know, the, the singing tones of the congregation. But since the earliest times, a cappella singing has been seen as sort of the purest, uh, most laudable form of congregational music because it's, the instrument is just us. It's the humans, it's the creatures made by God. It's not the things made by the creatures, right? And so uh, a cappella is, we hold that as a high standard, but we also use instruments because, well, we use a lot of things that we make. And the Psalms, of course, uh, make it clear that instruments were used from the earliest times um, in the Jewish worship as well. So music, obviously, is incredibly important for us. Uh, it's really interesting. I find it fascinating, the, the development, the evolution of music and hymnody and, and how that all works with our liturgies. Uh, as fascinating as that is on an academic level, the reason I want to describe it and give you a sense of where it comes from is just to make sure that we all know this is very rooted, right? This has not come from, this is not even recent tradition. When we sing what we sing in our worship, we are connecting with our brothers and sisters, well, our forefathers and mothers, going back generations beyond even the early church into the, the people of God called out from the world from the beginning. Our traditions connect us through thousands of years of the worship of the God of Israel and of his son who came to save us and inspired by the Holy Spirit who with father and son is one. Music in the church lifts our spirits. It joins us with the angels in what they're doing. It is non-negotiable. It's something that must happen in church because it was specifically ordained by God. So we take it seriously, you know. Um, we, we don't lightly let go of musical tones or melodies. We, a lot of the things that we sing, the melodies go right back to, you know, the five or six hundreds A.D. Um, we, we are continuing to use and sing and pass on to the next generation what has been passed on to us. And I think that is an important thing. And I think we can feel, um, feel uh, a sense of joy and, and pride in knowing that we are continuing to live into the tradition that's been given to us and that has such a rich, long, ancient heritage. So because um, we are continuing to sing uh, next something uh, new, uh, we are going to sing the uh, hymn prescribed for morning prayer on Sundays next. And if you open the hymnals in front of you, it will be hymn number one as the morning prayer hymn for Sunday. We're going to sing it according to the old 
uh, Latin Gregorian melodies. Um, there, there is a version with a, a easier sort of uh, more recent hymn type thing, but we're going to use the, the old melody. Um, it's not going to be familiar to anybody, but we're going to try to sing it together anyway. Um, and we're going to continue to keep this up as we uh, do morning and evening prayer. And in the weeks to come, we will be introducing a few more hymns and such that uh, may be unfamiliar now, but hopefully will become familiar as we use them. So I hope that that overview of uh, our music has been helpful. And let's use it as faithfully as we can as we continue praising God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.